What a fun summer this has been going through this series. It has been such a blessing and encouragement for me just listening to these teachers and, and hearing Jesus' words and what he has for us. And, and I think it's so cool because Jesus' words, his life, his ministry, his purpose and what he accomplished for us are oftentimes summed up in these poignant little stories called parables. And in every case, they are an invitation to experience the kingdom of God in our lives, a more whole and complete and full way of living through truly knowing who Jesus is. Now, the cool thing about Jesus was he was fully God, but he was also fully man. So he, he gets us, he understands us, and he understood the, our pitfalls and the things that would hang us up and the struggles we're going through and the things that would draw us away from him. And so he would tell these, these parables, these little stories, to help bring us back to him, to what was really important. And I think you're going to find today as we look at the parable of the ten virgins, you're going to see that is exactly what Jesus is calling us to. Now, most of you have probably heard the name Andre Agassi. Now, even if you're not tennis fans or tennis players, you've probably at least heard the name because he was one of the most prominent tennis players in the 90s and early 2000s. He went pro by the time he was age 16, and in his 20-year career, he won eight Grand Slams, which is a big deal in the world of tennis. And he was one of the best players in the world. But surprisingly enough, when his autobiography came out, we find out that Agassi didn't really even like tennis. In fact, he hated tennis for most of growing up and most of his professional career. And people were shocked by this because he would fight so intensely on the court just to win these championships. And he knew all of the right things to do. He had all of the right technique and, and, and everything that he needed on the court to win. But one of the most telling things he said was, I never chose this life. Before I was born, my dad decided that I was going to be one of the world's best tennis players. And he would describe these grueling practice sessions where he would sometimes just deflect a ball off so he would get a, a minute to take a breather while his dad went and chased the ball. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine living in that. But, and so he, had, he knew all of the right things to do. He, he had all of the right actions, the right the everything that he needed to be the best tennis player, the best there was. But because it wasn't his choice, there was no love for the game. And that's what Jesus is drawing our attention to today as we look at the parable of the ten virgins. But not professional tennis careers, uh, but what it means to truly know him, the why of what we do, the purpose of what we do. And, and I'm excited to, to walk through that with you here today. We'll be in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. And this is a parable about the second coming of Jesus. Now, if you're not familiar with that phrase, the second coming of Jesus, this is what it's all about. Jesus promised to come back for his people. He, he promised to come back and, and redeem them and, and bring them to him that we may be reconciled to him. He promised to bring destruction of sin, judgment on the earth, and to make all things right again. And when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the results of God's rule and reign in the lives of people, that wholeness and restoration and completeness, hope, joy, life, those things are the results of God's rule and reign in the lives of people here today. But when Jesus comes back in his second coming, he brings all of those things into full fruition into all of creation. And so this is what he's uh, perking our attention towards here. Now, the whole story that this parable is setting, set in is chapter, Matthew chapter 23 through 25. So if you want some extra reading this week, uh, I recommend reading that whole chunk and you get the whole picture of what's happening there. But in chapter 23, Jesus starts out in the temple, hanging out with his friends, the Pharisees, right? As you all know, he thinks so dearly of them. He loves them so much, and that's why he spends so much time with them. But they're a little bit difficult because they think they know 
everything. They think they have it all figured out. They think they know God. They think they know what's best. And therefore, they're really hard to teach. And so Jesus is standing there trying to help them understand what's really important. Ironically enough, the, the main point of it all is Jesus, and they're missing the main point of it all standing right there in front of them. I think that's kind of funny a little bit, but not funny at the same time. And so he has these words with them, and he says, you're, you're blind guides. You're, you're heaping guilt on the shoulders of your followers to try and follow all these religious rules and requirements, and you're weighing them down. You're clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of filth and greed and malice and envy and all of these atrocious qualities that I wouldn't want to be associated with. All right, so he has this, this nice little conversation with the Pharisees, and then he leaves the temple with, his, with the disciples. And then he begins to talk with his disciples about what's really important, what we should live for, and how we should prepare to meet him when he comes back for us. So as we read through the parable, there's a lot of symbolism in this parable, and so I want to prick your ears to a couple things. First of all, the, uh, the, the virgins in the, in the parable, they represent what is pure, the, the church, God's people, right? And so it, it represents the people that associate themselves with the work of the church or call themselves Christians. The oil in the lamps represents faith. The bridegroom uh, is, represents Jesus. And the, the feast, the celebration at the end of the story, represents uh, the celebration in heaven for all of eternity. So keep those things in mind as we're reading through this parable here. So let's dive into it. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Jesus said, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them are foolish and five are wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil along in jars with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there's not enough for both us and you. Instead, go, and buy some, go, and buy, uh, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The ten virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the doors were shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So in this parable we have the the ten virgins who are the bridesmaids in this wedding story. Now, this was a typical wedding tradition where the bridesmaids would have lamps lighting the way for the, the wedding processional coming to the bride's house, and then they would have the, some more ceremony things, and then a week-long wedding celebration. When I learned that, I thought, man, how cool is that? <laughs> a week-long wedding celebration. I think that'd be a blast. And, and so <clears throat> this is what they're, they're setting out to do. And so they're taking their lamps with them, right? The five wise uh, bridesmaids bring their lamps with oil to burn because that's how lamps work, right? And then you have the five foolish bridesmaids who bring their lamps with no oil to burn, right? And so then they, they get their lamps out and when the time comes to light the lamps, they're trimming their wicks, but they don't have any oil to burn. They're polishing their lamps, but they don't have any oil to burn. So it's clear there's some disconnect in their mind here this whole time. They're not living in anticipation of the arrival of the bridegroom. They're not even living as if he exists or that he's coming. They're just following along and looking the part. 
the oil in this represents faith, truly knowing who Jesus is. And we know in Hebrews eleven six it says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And this is the one element that is missing from the foolish bridesmaids, and it is the one that leaves them out of the wedding feast at the end of the story. So the punchline of the parable is Matthew twenty five twelve, where he says, truly I tell you, I don't know you. So why are they left out? Because they didn't really know him. They knew of him, but they didn't live as if he existed. They just played the part. They wore the jersey, but never showed up to practice. They knew about him, but they didn't know him. And by the time they realized it, it was too late. And so Jesus in this parable is calling us to examine our relationship with him. Now, this is a little bit of a startling parable, if you ask me, and a little different than the others because it's directed towards those who call themselves Christians, who associate themselves with the work of the church. And further, Jesus told this parable to those closest to him, his disciples, the people who were literally following him with their lives, who had given everything up to follow him. So why would Jesus tell this story to his disciples? Well, I, I think the purpose becomes pretty clear when you look at what was happened culturally then and then also what's, what happens culturally now. Jesus was addressing the things that were happening that were keeping people from truly knowing him. Danielle Durant put it perfectly when she said this, and I think this sums up the, really the point of the parable. She said, we are very good at spinning a perception and have the enormous capacity to put on a good face in Christian circles, to play the part, do right things, and entirely miss the point, avoiding unresolved problems and never understand what it truly means to follow Jesus. Well, that sits about as well as a one-pound burrito from the gas station, doesn't it? Whew. Not real well. But this is, it's important for believers because, uh, for the people who call themselves Christians who follow Jesus with their lives because it's so easy to get distracted with the busyness and doing the, our good deeds and all of this stuff and to get wrapped up in that and find our, our identity in those things. And, and Jesus is calling us back to what's important, which is relationship with him. And if you're here today and you're not really sure about where you're at with Jesus or if you want to follow him with your life and you have more questions than answers, that's okay. And I tend to find that unbelief oftentimes comes from a misunderstanding of what God really intends for his people, what it is that he is beckoning us to in this relationship. And so my hope today is that you'll have a chance to just to sit back and just to, to maybe gain some more perspective on what it is that God really wants for his people. So there's two take-home points from this. Uh, it's, first of all, do we really know Jesus like we think we do? And how do we live in watchful preparation? So first of all, do we really know Jesus like we think we do? It's easy to say, yeah, well, I have faith in Jesus. I know Jesus. But then our lives can demonstrate a completely different story. That we can put our actual real life faith and actions on a daily basis in something completely different than him. Like the foolish bridesmaids. They're like, yeah, we're part of the wedding party. Look at my lamp, right? But, but the story was their actions were totally different. You don't have any oil. I can only imagine the thoughts of the five wise bridesmaids. Um, maybe, I don't know, at least for me, I would have been thinking some different things. But anyway, so... <coughs> It's easy to, to live that way, to say this, but then what does our, real, our actual everyday life speak about what our faith is truly in? And as I was sorting through these things, these questions really challenged me. 
do we really want God to interfere with our life? Do we want him to have a say about our habits, our time, our internet browser history, our money? Do we want him to get in the way of what we want? Or do we only want to follow him if what he wants lines up with what we want? You see, grace is the way in which we are welcomed into his presence and seen as favorable in his eyes. It has not always been that way. And that is what Jesus did for us, that God looks upon us favorably, that we could approach him. But it is easy to cheapen that grace when we put our faith in other things than him. Like Isaiah 29, 13 says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Do we carry the lamp, trim the wick, polish it up with no intent of bringing oil? And this is what happened with the foolish bridesmaids, and it was what left them out of the wedding feast at the end of the story. Now, this might seem harsh to some of you, and some of you might get frustrated at this parable and, and, and like with a little bit of indignation. Well, what about the God of grace and love that's supposed to welcome everybody with open arms? And it's really important that we deal with these feelings that arise uh, with this parable. As Ravi Zacharias, a prominent Christian apologist, put it, he said, sometimes we try to force God to fit our mold for him, to fit our idea of how he should act. And then when he doesn't meet those expectations, we blame him for not meeting those expectations. So I want to play a little game with you to maybe help bring some more light to the situation. It's called, What Would You Do? Now, many of you have probably at least heard of the TV show, What Would You Do? Or, or have seen it. And personally, I think it's a little bit cruel. They, they set up the situation, they hire actors, and, and they create the situation where so, like, a stranger has to stick up for them and really put their neck out on the line for them. And they get kind of all riled up and they have to put themselves out on the line. And then the cameras come out, hey, it's not real, just kidding. This is, what would you do? What do you think of this whole thing? And for me, I'm thinking, that's like mean, but it'll be a lot kinder today, I promise. So there was a poor man. Think about what you would do in this situation. There was a poor man, nothing going for him. He meets a wealthy girl. He likes her. He really likes her money. Now, they get engaged, and before they get married, they take out a set of life insurance policies, you know, just in case anything happens to their honey bunny, you know, they'll be okay. And they get married, this beautiful wedding day and everything, and the next day, the husband disappears, the day after the wedding. And it turns out he drained the bank accounts. And it, the way they had the accounts set up, he had access to the family estates, which was worth a whole load of money. And he drained all of those as well and left town without a trace and wasn't seen again. And it turns out, I guess, that he went down to Mexico and uh, lived there for the rest of his days. He built a nice house on the beach there and just did whatever he wanted. Uh, he wore his ring most of the time but he wasn't necessarily faithful during that time. Now, 30 years had passed, and he got word that his wife had a terminal illness and wasn't doing well. And so he decided to make a trip back to the States. And so he drives up to the house where they started their life, where his wife still lives. She never moved on, never remarried. Walks up to the door, knocks on the door, and the wife opens the door, and to her astonishment, her husband is standing there. And she's speechless. She doesn't know what to, sit, what to even say. 
And so he takes the initiative. He says, hey, I heard you weren't doing so well, so I just wanted to come and just check and make sure those life insurance policies were still in place so that, you know, when things take their course that, you know, I get what I should out of it all. And, uh, you know, I blew through all that money, and this was a long trip. Could you make me something to eat? What would you do? <laughs> I can think of a lot of different things I would do. Let's say the nice thing she would do is say, I don't even know you, right? She has no idea who he is. And after 30 years coming back, just to see what's in it for him? How could he do that? So she would probably say, I don't even know you, and shut the door and lock it and call the police. That would be a smart decision. And I think most of us would agree that would be a justifiable set of actions there. But why is it that our set of expectations is different for our relationship with Jesus? in valuing the love that he has shown us, in valuing what he has entrusted to us. It is easy for us to receive everything he has for us and completely neglect the relationship and not valuing the love that he has for us. Why is it that our expectations are different for our relationship with him? Grace is the way in which we are welcomed into the kingdom, but an act of faith is the way we accept the fullness of God in our lives. Accepting the fullness of God in our lives. So why is this important? Because it is where we will be most fulfilled. It is where we come truly alive. Because when we know God, we know ourselves. We know who we truly are. And when we know who we are, we know what we are to do. When we know the one true God who will stop and nothing to win us back is never stopping, never giving up, once and like, always love for us, that he is persistent in winning us back. When we know that kind of love, it changes who we are. And then when we come to see who God has made us to be, how he sees us, that God sees us in the likeness of Christ, that he has given us every blessing in the heavenly realm through Christ Jesus, as it says in Ephesians chapter one, that he has made us co-heirs with Christ, that the fullness of the deity of God lives within all of us who bear his name as Christians, as it says in Colossians 2.9. That Jesus Christ himself said that we will do what he has been doing and even greater things than those, as he said in John 14, 12. I don't know about you, but when I encounter these things in the word of God, I realize I far underestimate my life. And, and Jesus is saying, use what I have given you to know me. Use all of these things, the full riches of the kingdom. Just open the door and accept it so that you can have full, my fullness in your life so that you may know me in the big things, in the small things, in the great moments, in the challenging moments, in, in the noise, in the mess, and everything in between. He wants us to know him, not just one hour a week putting in our, our good deed of our good spiritual deeds so we can put that token in the God vending machine so he spits out a blessing in our life. That's not what this is about. He's talking about a real life relationship that we would value his love with our lives. John 1.16 puts the, paints the picture beautifully. And, and this is the amplified version which shows more of the, what each word means here. And it says, for out of, the, out of his fullness, the superabundance of his grace and truth, we have all received grace upon grace, spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing, favor upon favor, and gift heaped upon gift. It couldn't get more extravagant than this. 
This is what God has entrusted to us. This is how God sees you. This is the capability and the capacity that he has for every single person in here that wants to follow him with their lives. This is the relationship that he is beckoning us to. But sometimes we sit on the floor in the warehouse and the storehouse of the kingdom of God and we just, we don't want to open the door of blessing. But when we understand things this way, we see that our, the, the disciplines of grace are no longer mundane, but the disciplines of grace are the keys to experiencing the kingdom of God in our lives. We can boil all of that down to this one thing. A car's balloon. I have to give this back to my son after today, otherwise he'd be really upset. When we make space for God, we experience more of his grace. Now, some of you are sitting there probably thinking, Eric, I feel like stretched in my life. I mean, I've, I'm a parent and I'm working full time and then I've got to like maintain my marriage and then be a good, uh, you know, mom or dad and then the friendships and I'm trying to advance in my career or working on a degree or trying to figure out what I want to do with my life and just stretching and stretching and stretching. You're like, I'm going to break here. Or you're just overloaded with just whatever the situation in your life and you feel buried underneath something and you're like, how could I, you're asking me to read my Bible and pray and make more space? I don't even, that doesn't even make any sense to me. But here's how the kingdom of God works. When we make space for him, he increases our capacity to experience his grace in our lives. So let's take something that we talk about a lot here. Reading our Bibles on a daily basis, engaging the word of God in our lives. When we make space for him, we experience more and more of his grace. Our fullness expands to experience him. We understand then how God sees us. Most of the New Testament is geared towards helping us understand our new identity in Christ. How God sees us, because when we understand how he sees us, it propels us outward. We see situations differently. We say, you know what? There's hurt and brokenness here. You know what? I know a God that brings restoration and wholeness and fullness in the lives of people, that brings abundant life through knowing his son, Jesus, that he has empowered you to, to, to bring his kingdom into that situation. And when we spend more time with him, we become more like him. And then that bleeds into the rest of our day. When we make space for him, we experience more of his grace. And where we were once stretched thin, our capacity to experience his grace in everything has increased. Or when we study the life of Jesus, we see what a life full of things of the kingdom of God really looks like. And that remember those words that Jesus said, you will do what I've been doing and even greater things than these. Jesus said that about us, and then that changes then how we see our opportunities, our obstacles, and everything around us, how we see, how we interact with our family and our friends. We see then what has been entrusted, and we value that love so much deeper, and it reflects out into our lives. Or, or let's take time in prayer. When you make space in our lives for prayer, to know him, to apply the truth of the word of God and see how God has enlisted us as Christians to bring pieces of eternity into the here and now, pieces of heaven and eternity into the here and now. He has deputized us to do that as believers in him. 
And so when we make space for him, he increases our capacity. And when we make space for him in the, in the great situations and the opportunities, and we bring those before him in prayer, watch how he blesses that. When we make space for him in the challenging moments and the messy moments and the noisy moments and the hard moments, watch how he blesses that. When we make space for him, he increases. We ex- experience more and more of his grace. Now, I don't know how you guys are with time and prayer. For me, sometimes I have a hard time sitting still and like in focusing. My mind wanders and I'll get done praying and I'll be like, I'm not sure I really accomplished anything other than remembering five more things I need to put on the grocery list. And so for me, sometimes I just need to take a walk. And when I walk and I'm moving, I can focus so much better on the Lord and just spend time with him or when I'm running or whatever it is. And so you know you best You know, it might be time just still before him, just listening, not even saying anything because you don't have any words in the situation you're in right now. And it might be time walking and moving just to to connect with him in prayer. But what it is, is it takes consistent effort, valuing his love. And it's gonna, you're gonna do great at it and you're gonna fail at it and you're gonna do great at it, but it's that effort to know him more in everything that we do. Or let's take worship. When we make time to create space in our lives for worship. I was talking with my wife the other night. And uh, we were just catching up on the day. And she, she was telling me, for her, she just connects with the Lord in worship. That is like what speaks to her soul. And she was telling me how she was cleaning up after dinner, washing some dishes. And she said, man, I just had the most amazing time with the Lord while I was washing dishes. And she's like, I know it sounds weird, but I just put on some worship music and I was just singing along. And it was like the Holy Spirit was there. It was like, yeah, a good time with the Lord. And so if we make space to include him in those moments, you can have a holy moment while you're washing dishes or mowing the lawn or grilling meat on the grill. I don't care what you're doing. Bring God into that situation and worship him and, and, and see how he fills that space with more and more of his fullness. This is what God is calling us to, to experience his fullness in our lives. And this is what it looks like when we do this on a daily basis or when we make space to, to commit the word of God to heart, to memorize it. It changes how we see ourselves because the word of God, as it says in Hebrews 4.12, is like a sword that cuts deep down into our heart and changes who we are. When you spend an entire week focusing on a verse and letting it just marinate and serenate and percolate inside of you, it begins to change who you are and how you see yourself, how you see the world around you and how you understand God. And I guarantee you the word of God will come alive to you as you bring that time to him. And it might mean just putting that verse on the mirror in the morning when you're getting ready. Or guys, if it takes you one to three minutes to get ready in the morning, might be a little different than the gals. Um, then maybe you can just put that card in your pocket and carry it around with you during the day. Instead of getting your phone out, maybe we get that card out. Welcome him into those moments. Or, or what about this? My natural tendencies, I wish these weren't true, but they are. I'm naturally impatient undisciplined, sometimes unkind, selfish. Like those are the things that naturally are like just my natural tendencies. And I wish they weren't true, but they are. And sometimes those things creep back into my life. And I just have to spend time with the Lord and say, God, I don't want those things in my life. I have to push those away and make space for him so that I can experience more and more of his grace. I don't know if this is gonna pop. And so when we make space for him, 
and to experience more of his grace and push those things away that we don't want in our lives anymore. He said, God, I feel like an ugly person right now because these things I've let in my life again. In the church, we call this repentance. And when this is a part of our lives every day and week, it changes who we are because in that space we create, God comes in and fills that up. This is the kind of relationship he desires for us so that we don't have to try and do more, be more on our own, but so that we can lean into God and say, God, Apart from you, I can do nothing. But with you, I know that I can be patient and kind and generous. Lord, fill me up with these things. And God desires that we have deep and meaningful relationships. So when we make space to experience more and more of his grace, and that we experience relationships that go beyond the surface. When we spend time committed and we're going through the word together to figure out what this is all about, because sometimes it's confusing, but to mutually encourage each other. Uh, without exception, the closest relationships in my wife and I's life are the people that we have spent time with in Bible studies over the years. And they are people that are there for us through the thick and thin that we can call on or text when things are, are, are not going great, because that's how life is sometimes. So when we make space to experience him in the big things and the small things and every single thing, he expands our capacity to experience his grace and his fullness in our lives. And when we are full of his grace, it is what propels us outward. And that is what he is calling us to. So my challenge to you today is not to be like Andre Agassi and figure out all the right things to do and say to be the good Christian and to be the right Christian. But my challenge to you today is to figure out how you can make more and more space in your life for him. To take one more step forward to say, God, I desire you more than I desire 15 more minutes of sleep in the morning. And watch how he blesses that and how then he bleeds into the rest of your day. And then you're going to be like, man. This is kind of cool. I want to make a little more space here while I'm mowing the lawn, right? So just invite him into those moments. This is the relationship God is beckoning us to. And this is what this parable is all about, is truly knowing him. And it won't be perfect, and it'll be messy sometimes, and we're going to fall on our face, and we're going to drop the ball. But the purpose is that every day we wake up with, with that intent and that focus, valuing that love that we can experience more and more of him in our lives. So let us live in response to this. Just like the wise bridesmaids who live by faith with our lamps full of oil in anticipation of meeting Jesus with our hope truly in what is eternal. And my hope and my prayer is that we could never leave this place on Sunday different, or never leave this place unchanged than when we came in. That our hearts would be changed by encountering the word of God and time and worship in his presence. So as we have time and communion now and we have space here now, I just pray, let's, uh, let's just welcome God into this place and welcome him into all of the places in our hearts and think about how we can make space in our lives for him this week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you that you will stop at nothing to win us back to you. God, for your relentless love, again, for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. God, that we could be seen as favorable in your sight. And God, I just, we want our lives 
just to be saturated with more of you. Show us now, Lord, speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Show us now where we can experience more of you in our lives. And God, I pray in this time of communion, Lord, that we can reflect and celebrate and cherish the sweetness of what you have done for us, the, the, the gravity of what your blood has accomplished on a part for us, that it has washed us clean, that we could be seen as righteous in your eyes, that your body was broken, Lord, for us, that while we were still sinners, God, you laid your life down on the cross for us. Lord, in this time of reflection and thanking you for that, Lord, meet us here. We want more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.